This week here at Naked Astronomy, we're launching something very special. We've teamed up with the Space Boffins podcast to bring you even more space science. Each month, Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson will be exploring the science and technology that gets us into space, bringing us the inside track on missions past, present and future. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Hey, Houston, the Challenger has landed. Houston Station, uh, we are ready for the event. Thank you. Welcome to Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. And we're now in partnership with the Naked Scientists, although in the interests of health and safety, none of us are actually naked. Well, I am, but don't tell anyone. To celebrate our new podcast hosts, we've put together a delicious cocktail, including some juice from Jupiter, washed down with a solar orbiter, and nicely tipped off with a party umbrella. And joining us at the Space Bar are live guests, Professor Andrew Coates, Head of Planetary Science at University College London's Mullard Space Science Laboratory, and also science writer and author of numerous books, including The Worlds of Galileo, which celebrates the Galileo mission to Jupiter. Mike Hanlon. Now, I just want to ask you both a question before we get going. We just had the, the transit of Venus, we had the successful launch of SpaceX. Do, do you say a renewed interest in space? I mean, Mike, first of all, you've been covering this for a long time. It's not been looking good lately. We've had the virtual cancellation of the uh, American manned space programme. Of course, the, we've got a great big probe on its way to Mars, an American probe, but this has a very much the feel of a last hurrah about it. There, is a, there are stirrings, though. SpaceX might, might be the beginning of a new private uh, initiative in space. And we've got, we've got this big new European uh, outer solar system probe, JUICE, which has uh, just been given the go-ahead. So there are, there's fire in the embers yet. <laughs> We're going to be talking about JUICE in a, in a couple of minutes, Andrew, but do you feel there's a bit more going on now? Oh, there's lots going on. I mean, there's, uh, there's fantastic stuff going on already in space with, uh, with Cassini at Saturn still sending us fantastic uh, Results. We started that over 20 years ago. And, and you're uh, involved in that. Yeah, we're you involved in that. Yeah. yeah, we have an instrument on that. And, um, and there's also Mars Express, Venus Express, lots of interesting things looking at. Um, and these are the unmanned probes. Uh, manned spaceflight, yes, has had a, a bit of a sort of changing scenario in the US and, uh, and actually going private and doing this in, in the private way with SpaceX, I think, is really the way to go for the future. I think it'd be a great thing to do for that. Well, many people are calling the, the SpaceX mission the dawn of a new era. And so here in one minute, 45 seconds, are some of the highlights and low points. Liftoff. We've had a cutoff. Liftoff did not occur. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. And launch of the SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket as NASA turns to the private sector to resupply the International Space Station. Capture is confirmed. Wonderful capture. You've made a lot of folks happy down here over in Hawthorne and right here in Houston. Great job, guys. Uh, Houston Station looks like we got us a dragon by the tail. Um, we're thinking uh, this sim went really well. We're ready to turn it around and do it for real. <laughs> this is Mission Control Houston, official hatch opening time for the SpaceX Dragon spacecraft, 4.53 a.m. Central Time. 
So the Expedition 31 crew getting their first look inside this uh, brand new spacecraft that arrived at the space station yesterday. I spent quite a bit of time poking around in here this morning just looking at the engineering and the layout and I'm very pleased. It's, it looks like it carries about as much cargo as I could put in my pickup truck and it's uh, roomier than a Soyuz so flying up in a, a human rated Dragon is uh, not going to be an issue. And the SpaceX team is confirming that uh, Dragon has successfully splashed down at 10.42 a.m. Central Time. Once again, 10.42 a.m. Central Time, Dragon is in the water. I wish he sounded more excited there. It was a splashdown. We haven't had a splashdown since, I don't know, what, Skylab in the 1970s? Yeah, but I think that's probably because you couldn't see it. Um, you could on NASA, you saw a sort of black and white picture. So I, I was on the old parachute stuff. Yeah. Um, I suspect if, if, I mean, it did excite the sort of Twitter community, but I expect if we could have seen it, perhaps there would have been more of, of you know, more excitement about it. I have it. got one serious problem with that whole mission. In fact, the whole International Space Station at the moment. The attire of astronauts. We have gone from the early 60s with these Mercury astronauts with their fantastic shiny silver spacesuits looking like spacemen. You saw Don Pettit, the NASA astronaut who you heard on that piece, floating through into the, into the Dragon capsule. He was wearing some sort of dodgy socks and this had this garter arrangement on his leg. It wasn't even like a proper utility belt. And I've seen them with I've seen them with socks and sandals. It's pretty shocking. Any comment to make on the attire of astronauts? <laughs> I think I think um, if the only problem with the ISS was the way the astronauts were, were <laughs> dressed, that would be the least of its problems. I think one of the great quotes was that NASA has spent the last 30 years doing its best to make manned spaceflight as dull as possible. And I think the, the trouble with the ISS is uh, the Simpsons parodied it beautifully where they had a... Uh, a mission to the ISS, ISS looking at which way widgets would fall in microgravity. And when we had 40 years ago, we were going to the moon, it, it does seem like a big come down. And again, splashdowns, we've seen all this 40 years before, and I know this is all incremental and, and new, but the public are beginning to say, well, what is it for? Why, what, where are the goals? Where are we going? What is space all about? Why are we spending any money at all? We need a goal. And I think that was the beauty of Apollo. It was a clearly defined goal. And it was, of course, also its, under, its downfall because that once, you, once you've reached your goal, where do you go from there? Andrew, I've interviewed you many times over the last, I think, 20 years or so. You are well known. If we want someone to be critical of manned spaceflight, you're the person to go to. Well, I think absolutely. The International Space Station, you know, you have to have to search for why are we actually doing this? And, uh, you know, Michael's absolutely right on that one. That It's a lot of money, $100 billion, you know, and for that, you'd expect them to dress better, I, I agree. <laughs> but, um, uh, but, but so it's a huge amount of money, not really going anywhere, but um, with the ideas of going off now maybe to uh, uh, to asteroids and possibly onto Mars but this is a sort of very far goal I think the most challenging and uh, and exciting missions are the things we can do in, in terms of real exploration of actually the unmanned spacecraft going off to explore places like Saturn Jupiter uh, asteroids and, and and so on and this is where the real uh, exploration is at, is at the moment well that leads us very nicely on to juice because recently the European Space Agency ESA selected and approved a mission to Jupiter for launch in 2022. It's called JUICE, a rather ridiculous acronym really, because it's supposed to stand for Jupiter 
icy moon explorer so there's not even an m for moon in there and i reckoned i did try one that involved jupiter europa callisto and ganymede which are the moods mm. it's going to visit and all i could come up with was europa cali Med- Medimu. <laughs> so it, it didn't quite work. The Medimu mission, I like yeah, that. Yeah. Medimu. We, so, we tried a number of, uh, of names during a, during a gin and tonic drink, drinking session after one of the science study team meetings, after the meeting, you know, yeah, but, uh, I, and, and this is where this name came from. I, I hate and to I say, but you can tell. Um, <laughs> so, Andrew, what, what's the draw then? What's the big draw for you? You're involved um, in this mission. What's the draw of Jupiter? Yes, having, having spent the last four years helping to define this mission, it's, it, it's a fabulous mission to be going to the giant planet uh, in the solar system, Jupiter, uh, to be looking at, um, at some of the aspects of Jupiter's atmosphere which we haven't been able to see before with the missions that have been previously. Galileo, for example, had some problems with its uh, communications antenna, which didn't, meant we didn't get very much data about that. But the sort of key jewel in this mission is actually going to the icy satellites. So it's going to be able to compare Europa, Ganymede and Callisto. And it will also onlook at Io. So these are the four Galilean satellites all of which are unique in their own way. I mean, Io is this fabulous moon with um, uh, producing about a tonne per second of material, sulphurous stuff going into the near environment of, of Jupiter. It looks itself a little bit like a pizza, but that's because of the sort of sulphurous uh, stuff coming out of it. Then there's, um, uh, there's Europa uh, with its water ocean underneath an icy crust. Um, a similar situation at Ganymede, but Ganymede is larger and it has its own magnetic field. Um, and then Callisto, which is an old pockmarked um, type of structure left over from the formation of the Galilean satellite. So it, they're sort of very similar. The similarities and differences between those and the sort of working out the, the in detail how the, how the formation of those happened and looking at the habitability um, of these moons. This is what this mission is all about and I'm really excited about it. And what will uh, Mullard Space Laboratory, what will you be providing for the mission? Well, we've, we've just reached a stage now where the mission has just been selected. So we've been working as part of the science study team to define the mission. So we have a model payload at the moment. So what we're doing over the summer is to actually propose instruments for the mission. So the academic community will be spending their summer, you know, um, doing, write, writing proposals for the mission. Meanwhile, the industrial contractors will, will be looking at uh, the mission to, to come up with industrial proposals for actually building it. Europa, many people are interested in it because of its association with life, the possibility of life. Are you more interested in Ganymede because of its magnetic field? Yeah, we're really interested in Ganymede. The unique aspects of it are that, first of all, it's a, it's, it's a very big satellite, a very large satellite. It has a magnetic field. This is one of the sort of key things that, uh, uh, that, that Ganymede has. So Ganymede has its own magnetosphere, and it's within Jupiter's giant magnetosphere. So this is one of the most exciting things to be looking at um, from, our, from our point of view. We're interested in the whole way that the system behaves. I mean, um, underneath the surface, we know that there is a liquid water ocean. We think at Ganymede that that is in contact with ice rather than with rock. At Europa, that ocean is in contact with rock, which gives more astrobiological possibilities. But the very, the very sort of comparison between these objects, um, this is what the mission is all about. So we're able to compare these these three uh, moons in detail, um, looking at Europa with the, the flybys of that, um, Ganymede, ultimately going into orbit around that. And that is a real first for the European Space Agency to actually go into orbit around an icy satellite. 
of a, of a giant planet. Uh, and then Callisto as well, looking at that for comparison. So comparing these three, looking at the habitability of all three and the formation processes, this is what the mission is about. And Mike, there's, there's a bit of a renewed interest in Jupiter. You've got Juno going there now and then this JUICE mission. Yes, uh, Jupiter is a fascinating place. I mean, the planet itself is a big stripy ball of gas, but it's it's four uh, large satellites. They they between them they they have a kind of narrative story about them from the, from the discovery by Galileo himself back in the early 17th century. These these worlds he discovered, and the first intonation really that there were planets going around planets in, in a way with it, with these moons of of Jupiter. And the way they're all so different, you've got this volcanic Io, Europa, this, this ocean world, looks like a billiard ball. Ganymede's a great big place, almost as big as Mercury, I think. And uh, Callisto, yeah. which looks more like our moon, and they're all very different places. I, I've got a couple of questions about the, the JUICE mission. I mean, one is, clearly Europa in many ways is the, is the star of the show. It is, it is the moon which has been, it's been speculated that there's a liquid ocean quite near to the surface. It's far, probably far more accessible for future landing missions than any of the other uh, satellites which might have water. Why, why, is, why has it been selected that Juice will orbit Ganymede rather than Europa, which would seem at prime, you know, first glance to be a more interesting target? Well, Ganymede really is an, is an object, a planet-sized object in the outer solar system. Yes, it's, it's bigger than Mercury. You know, it's, it's, it's actually like, like having um, a planet um, located in the outer solar system. It's got a magnetic field which helps to protect it from radiation. And one, of the, one of the problems with the other moons, uh, well, with Europa in particular, is the radiation environment is higher there. Um, and so the deflection by the magnetic field of, of radiation could play a key role in, in making the chemistry actually right at Ganymede. So I I think actually Ganymede is more interesting than um, uh, than, than Europa. In fact, um, we, we are doing some aspect of Europa, looking at the non-iced composition. Everybody knows that um, you know it's, it's basically made of ice, but it's the non-iced constituents which are which are of interest. Um, and then looking at the um, the ocean underneath, actually characterising that in terms of the depth at all of these objects, and then what, comparing why not land them. on it then? What, why doesn't this mission include a lander? Landing would be great, and it would uh, it's it's something for the future. Um, so. We don't know very much about these, uh, these, these moons for now, um, and so we need to map them to understand them in detail to look for potential future landing sites, um, and we can't fit it into the budget. So, Mike, I, I, you, you would want to go to look for life. You'd want to do all these things, and you'd focus on Europa. Well, I, th- I think the issue with space, again, I'm talking about the whole goal thing, and I'm, I'm not particularly anti-manned space exploration as such, as some people are almost, you know, de facto. I think, I think people have to think, what is, what is space, but what are we looking for in space? I think ultimately lurking at the back of all these missions, whether it's to the Moon, to Mars, the outer solar system, or whether we're looking at extrasolar planets, there is this feeling that what we're really looking for is 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 life in in a sense i mean all these all these findings seem to to either point towards or point against and i think given that we have you know limited lifespan of us our scientists our generation given that, that money may not always be there i think it would be a sensible idea to sort of go for it as, as quickly as we can in terms of picking the low-hanging fruit, the, the objects in our solar system which look most promising. Now, I quite agree, Ganymede is, is, a, is a possible home, but the ocean there is going to be hundreds of kilometres down below the surface, isn't it, um, from what we can tell? I, I think we don't know because, uh, I mean, all we've got so far to, to determine, uh, uh, you know, where the ocean is or the depth of it is a magnetic field signature, a wiggle in the magnetic field, which then you put that together with models to see where the, uh, to, to see where the ocean is. Yes, it's a thicker icy crust, but that 
also helps as regards shielding of radiation. So for life, and, and certainly this mission is focused actually on, on habitability of these icy satellites, so, so that is the focus. So you need um, a source of energy, you need liquid water, you need other substances, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus and sulphur. You need those and then you need enough time for life to develop. So that is what we're trying to do with this mission, to actually go and examine those four things with these, uh, w- with these moons. And we think that Ganymede actually has a really good chance of, um, of, of something going on there. And, um, but comparing and contrasting between these different objects, we decided we wanted to go to Europa as well to measure the non-ice composition in particular and to look at the ocean. And I agree that having, you know, looking closer to the surface because uh, there was a recent discovery showing, um, showing possible lakes um, underneath the surface um, in, in regions, the chaos regions where, uh, where there's sort of signs of recent activity. So fairly close to the surface? Yeah, fairly close to the surface and it, and it could be you know, just a few kilometres underneath the surface in, 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 the, in the case of Europe. So we're going t- precisely to those regions. So exactly the picking the low-hanging fruit, fruit, that's what we're doing. But I think this is the logical next step beyond Mars. Um, Mars is also a fabulous place to be looking for life and and you know the ExoMars mission hopefully in a few years will be doing that um, but this is a natural next step we know there's water um, at these at these moons um, and that's one of the things to be to be going for and the habitability is really important similarly in the Saturn system Titan and Enceladus also fascinating targets for the future how much of a, an overlap is there between Juno which is on its way what Juno is going to be doing and then what you will be doing following up Right, it's, it's complementary. Juno is actually going into polar orbit, and the main goal of Juno is actually to look at the structure of Jupiter itself, to see if Jupiter has a core or not, um, and uh, to look at the, really the interior structure of Jupiter. It will also be looking at the aurora to some extent, um, and looking at the particles going into and causing the aurora or the northern and southern lights of Jupiter, um, and, and concentrating on that. So it's in a polar orbit. So JUICE is complementary in that it's in an equatorial orbit. It goes a little bit out of the equatorial phase during the Callisto flyby um, uh, period that we that we have in order to make it really complementary with Juno. So with that, we will have the whole of the magnetosphere of Jupiter covered, which is a huge thing and, and remarkable to think of in itself. Many sci- many times, if we could see it from Earth, many times larger than the, the full moon. So, uh, so a really important object. Now, when we were talking about this before we came into the studio, you mentioned it's not going to be there in orbit for 20 years. That's right. It's a, it, it's a long mission. So here we are, you know, 2012, having, having just selected the mission. We've now got to get the instrument selected, build it, it gets launched in 2022, goes into Jupiter orbit in 2030, um, and then 2032 is when it goes into orbit around Ganymede. Will so, you still have the funding then? Will you still have a job then? Will you still have people working on this? We hope. Then? I mean, you know, the retirement age is going back and back, isn't it, in the um, in the whole system. But, um, uh, but you know, there's a there's succession plans anyway with postdocs and students and people working with us at the moment. And actually it's remarkable to think that two-year-olds now could potentially be doing their PhDs just as this juice goes into orbit around uh, around Ganymede. Now, we didn't bring Mike Hanlon into the studio for his optimism. I, I sensed from your question earlier that you fear for the future of the agencies, that the, the, the ability to do these sorts of big missions. Yes, I, I do wonder whether this is the right way of going about it, to be honest. I think the problem is, you know, people have, you know, people live a certain amount of time, careers last a certain amount of time, and I think 2030, 2032, you know, 
I'm going to be of retirement age. A lot of the senior scientists working on this project now are going to be of retirement age. It's all very long-term, and I think part of the problem with space is keeping the public enthused. I mean, even during the heady days of Apollo, which was very exciting, only about a third of the American population were that enthusiastic about it. And I think this is a, a part of the problem with these very long-term plans. They seem, very, they seem to be the right way of going about it, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure that a note of excitement might need to be injected into these things. I, I, I approve of Dragon. I mean, I know the ISS is a bit of a waste of time and money, but it's quite a nice idea. You've got this PayPal guy has funded this, this development of this little capsule called Dragon. It works, it can get there, it can carry people. It gets people quite enthusiastic, and I think it's one of those things where sometimes you see little chinks of light. I'm, I'm really not happy about the asteroid landing plan, Obama. Most, mo- most of the taxpayers don't even know what an asteroid is, and that's not to, to denigrate them. Everyone knows what the moon is. You can look it up in the sky and see it. Um, if people say, you know, in 35 years' time, some of our astronauts might be landing on an asteroid and taking back some bits of metal, people are thinking, well, mm, OK, maybe there's other things we should be spending our money on. Yeah, but they have uh, seen it on uh, uh, in the movies. They've though. seen Bruce Willis they've do it. That Bruce. is true. That is true. <laughs> yes. Right. Well, this is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with the Naked Scientists. And we're going to move on to a different mission now. And we still do have a connection um, there with, with Andrew, because it was good news for the British space industry recently when Astrium UK was chosen as the prime contractor for the Solar Orbiter spacecraft. Now, that was a uh, contract was signed on April 26th, which you may remember was, was the there. um yeah. Yeah, good, the 50th anniversary of the <laughs> UK in space. And if you've not heard last month's podcast on Area 1, then you've got to download it immediately after this one. Now, Solar Orbiter, which will travel inside the orbit of Mercury and closer to the sun than anything that's gone before, will be built in Stevenage. So I went to meet Astrium UK's Head of Space Science, Ralph Cordy. There are key questions which are still to be answered about the sun, you know, this most important body in our solar system influencing the environment around it and in which our Earth lives. But at the same time, there was a, a recognition that other technologies being developed for other ESA missions would actually make this one even more possible. So the fact that European Space Agency is building a mission called Bepi Colombo to go to the planet Mercury is actually an enabler to help us consider building this mission solar orbiter to go so close to the sun. What's it building on in terms of Bepi Colombo? I assume this is relating to the fact that this mission is going to be so much closer to the sun than, than has gone before. That's right. The two missions, Bepi Colombo and Solar Orbiter, they face a similar challenge. It's hot, for goodness sake. Solar Orbiter is going to go to a place where it's, it's as if there are 13 suns in the sky and it's not much better for Bepi Colombo. So to make the Bepi Colombo mission work, we're having to develop new solar cell technology which will work efficiently with the high light levels and high temperatures that we find that close to the sun. And we will be reusing those for, for Solar Orbiter. But, you know, there are other challenges as well for Solar Orbiter. I mean, it has to protect itself as it goes even closer to the sun. It has to hide behind a heat shield to allow its electronics to to work at room temperature. They like being comfortable, just like us. Now, this mission is going to go to the poles of the sun and and the sort of the equivalent of the moon's dark side, the side of the sun that we don't normally see. When you've got a star as huge as that... 
what difference will it make? Well, this is one of the unique features of Solar Orbiter. It's going to put the, the spacecraft into an orbit where it gets a good view of the sun's poles. And this will be the first time we've been able to, to, to do that from relatively up close. And it's important because... There are processes which link the sun's equator through to the sun's poles concerning the generation of the sun's magnetic field. And this is all tied up with the generation of the solar wind and the magnetic fields that permeate the solar system. This spacecraft is, has been said it's going to be chasing the sun because of its speed. You're almost going to get the equivalent of like a geostationary orbit. Why do you want to do this? At its closest to the sun, it's going to be moving at an angular velocity, rather similar to the sun's rotation. So it's rather like a geostationary satellite over the Earth. It means that we can watch for prolonged periods, points on the sun, where activity is being generated. And the point about this mission is to link things on the solar surface to the environment around the spacecraft. It's making that link between the processes. So the longer we can watch active regions on the sun as we orbit past, the better. What's the difference between a mission like this and the ones that have gone before, be it SOHO or, or Ulysses? I think it's this combination of remote sensing, imaging with many different wavelengths, the processes on and close to the sun, but also at the same time being relatively up close, actually sampling the material, the charged particles and magnetic fields and low frequency radio waves coming from the sun. You can't do that from further away. There's too much turbulence, there's too much distortion that happens. You have to go up close and do that. So this is a unique mission. It's doing those two things. What's going on in the environment and what's happening on the solar surface. How are you going to withstand that sort of radiation environment at that close? The main protection we're going to use and it's in an environment like having 13 suns in, in the sky, is basically a, a very well carefully designed heat shield. And we ensure that the spacecraft is always keeping that particular face with the shield towards the sun. And basically, the shield is there to reflect away as much heat as possible and through carefully designed layers to reduce the temperature in stages from about 500 degrees Celsius on the front surface down to literally room temperature on the back. Wow, that's amazing. And what stage are we at at the moment? We've not quite start building it just yet, have you? It's get, getting close. I mean, we've, um, we've been putting together an industrial team across Europe to design in detail and start building the individual bits of Solar Orbiter. That's something to remember is, of course, we're leading this mission from here in Stevenage in the UK, but actually it's a team from all across Europe that's going to be building this with us. The schedules are being put in place. It's starting to look real rather than something that's purely on paper. And it will be in the period between now and launch in 2017 that we'll start to see this spacecraft really appear here in the clean rooms and, and come together as a recognisable spacecraft to go to the sun. Astrium UK's Ralph Cordy and the first steps towards building Solar Orbiter. Andrew, you're co-investigator of a couple of instruments on board that, which is actually going to launch before JUICE. Yeah, we have in, in our lab, we have this, the solar wind analyzer being built and also parts of, uh, parts of one of the images as well. So that really sort of cements this link, really, between, uh, between the processes going on on the sun itself and the processes in the solar wind. And it is a real first that this is being done and uh, the, the proximity to the sun is the important thing. Why? why? What's the, the point of all these solar missions? Um, to actually try and understand the activity of the sun and um, the magnetic field and the way that, uh, the, way that the solar wind is generated. Um, the solar wind, you know, was first thought of really in the 50s. This with, is the stream rails. of charged particles right, from yeah. the sun. Yeah, about a million tonnes per second uh, moving 
moving outwards through the solar system, interacting with anything getting in its way. So, so discovered in, in the first uh, case by looking at comet tails, but it affects our own magnetosphere um, and um, the other magnetospheres in the solar system and other solar wind interaction uh, regions. So, for example, it strips away Mars's atmosphere. So it's very important to try and understand it and understand the activity of the sun and how the solar wind is produced. Can you get excited about this one? Mike? Yes, yes. I <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my enthusiasm is relentless. Yeah, no, no, the, uh, the, the sun is, is uh, as, as that uh, piece said, it's the core of our solar system. We don't understand the sun. Uh, we don't understand anything, really. Of course, without it, we wouldn't be here at all. And how it works, I mean, it's presumably pertinent to, to all sorts of... Uh, debates about the, the solar impact on climate change. Um, natural variation in climate is how much is the sun, is this going to nail those kinds of questions? It will nail questions about space weather and, and the effects of, um, of, of the sun on our own magnetosphere and, uh, and the effects on satellites within it. Um, climate change, yes, there is a whole debate about that and so it will uh, be able to look in more detail at the solar input into the Earth's system. Um, I mean, our main interest is how the plasma interacts, but, uh, but yes, the, the whole radiation balance and, and how that is affected by the sun, of course, is a key, key question for all of us here on Earth. I do almost think, is there any mission that you're not involved in, Andrew, or any planet with, what, Venus? The ISS, Mars, presumably. Absolutely right, yes. But, Venus, uh, Saturn, Mars, yeah. Jupiter... Yeah, have there I are other one? missions. Well, oh, Bethlehem, Mercury, oh, Mercury. Mercury, yeah, yeah. The, the, um, I mean, we have the the, the involvements vary between them as to the, as to the amount. Uh, Rosetta, as well, of course, which is on its way to to a comet. Um, but uh, the, the the amounts of of, uh, of activity vary um, between them. Uh, I mean, currently, the most important thing that I'm working on really is the Cassini mission, which is at Saturn, and, and getting the data back from that, understanding it. We've made fabulous discoveries there, and Celadus with its plumes, Titan with its really heavy um, uh, hydrocarbon species in, up in the upper atmosphere there. So that is my current favourite. But, um, but uh, you know, all these other missions are very important as well. And it's, it's just wonderful opportunity to actually be involved in all of these. Well, that's um, the Space Boffins podcast. Our thanks to Astrium's Ralph Cordy on Solar Orbiter and our studio guests, Andrew Coates and Mike Hanlon. The Space Boffins podcast is a Boffin Media production supported by the Atrium Space Insurance consortium with a grant from the uk space agency and it is from now being brought to you by the naked scientists and we'll be moving our hosting over completely to the naked scientists website over the next couple of months so that means the space boffins podcast alternates with the naked astronomy podcast and that means you now get two space podcasts for the price of one which is of course technically absolutely nothing. Uh, we'll keep you posted about these changes and what that means on our Facebook page. You can also follow us and tweet us on Twitter. Just search for Space Boffins. I've been Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. We're back in a month's time talking Mars ahead of the landing of the Curiosity rover. But for now, thanks for listening. <laughs>